we're in the midst of a series focusing on church health and, and what it is to be a healthy church in the midst of difficult times. We've been working with a major premise that we've really been we really need need to reemphasize this morning. It's really been with us every week, and that is that a healthy church is the result of God's uh, of the work of God among His chosen people who are living in obedient response to Him. A healthy church is God's work. Church health starts with Him. In, in fact, there's a number of organizations, if you think of it in these terms, there's a number of organizations that get together and they do good things and they have common missions and, and, and they strive to make a difference in our culture and the world around us, but yet we don't consider them a church and we would never say that they're a healthy church because they don't even claim to be a church. I mean, Lions Club and Rotary Clubs and, and good uh, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, these are just organizations that maybe there's some good in belonging to them and there maybe there's some good purpose that they exist for, but they would never claim to be a church and so they don't, they're not Gonna, they're not going to say anything about church health. They're, you know, we can't look at them and say, oh, that's, that's, the, that's the essence of church health is to look at how these organizations function. But we do that all the time when we look at businesses and when we look at how other organizations function and say, oh, if we're going to be a healthy church, this is what we have to do. We have to implement these programs. Church health starts with the work of God. He's the one that does it. The reality is that you can even slap the name church on something, and that doesn't necessarily make it a church. I recently was able to watch a documentary, and I, I, I don't know that I'm better for this. I really feel kind of creeped out by it, but this documentary on the Church of Scientology, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. It's a strange group of people, and they call themselves church. They, they, it's in their name, but God has done no work. God has not established them as a people. They certainly have a religious perspective pretty out there. They, they certainly have traditions that they follow. They take money, they have buildings, they, they have the trappings, but, but we, wouldn't, we wouldn't point anyone there and say, hey, that's a healthy group of people, go be a part. The essence of church health starts with the work of God, and we've seen that. Since, since the very beginning, we, we started building it out from 1 Peter verse 1. We began building out this idea that it begins with the work of God. And we did that for two weeks, really, di- directly, di- definitively for two weeks. We built out this idea that church health starts with his work. And then last week we turned and we, we recognized that there is a responsibility that we have. And that's the, really the second idea that this premise puts forth, is, is that it's, it's God's work among his chosen people and our obedient response to him. We do have a part to play. We do have a responsibility in light of what he's doing to act. But it, it doesn't start with doing, it starts with believing. See, our responsibility, the gospel doctrine is that God has worked in Jesus Christ, that God has moved and saved and changed people, and and, and that we believe in Him. That is the gospel doctrine, and that doctrine is our foundation. It is what we stand on. It's what gives us stability. And if we move away from it, we weaken our health. We, we, actually, we actually hurt ourselves. We, we, we actually aren't the healthy people that, that, that we might appear to be from the outside. This gospel doctrine that we have laid out over the last couple of weeks is vital to our health. God works. We believe. We quit trusting in our own efforts and our own works. And, and we trust in Jesus, the work of Jesus on the cross, the work of Jesus through His resurrection that makes us who we are. 
But here's where it begins to get difficult. See, this gospel doctrine is not just a set of religious rules or, or religious practices. It's not just something we view from the outside or that's external to us. Man, that is how so many of us treat it. It's no wonder that the world looks at us and thinks that you you just just should be able to set it aside. You should just be able to put that aside when you come into the marketplace. You should just be able to set that aside when you go to vote. It's just this external set of beliefs. It's just this external set of practices. It's no wonder our culture is confused because I think in reality... We as Christians are often confused. Brothers and sisters, this gospel doctrine isn't just about what we do. It is. But before it's about what we do, it's about who we are. It is central to our identity. It is central to who we are. And that's really, I think, what Peter gets at as he changes perspective. And as we turn to his letter today, and he's writing to this early church, I think that's what we need to to focus on. If we are going to be a healthy church, we are going to have to get this identity piece right. Because otherwise, it's always going to be something external. It's always going to be something we just do outside of ourselves. But when we learn it's who we are, it's going to change how we then act and why we then act. So let's read the passage, and then I think uh, we'll just break it out, and and we're going to deal with it from a couple of different perspectives. But um, I think I think it'd be very helpful for us as we as we learn who we are. So Peter writes, we're going to begin in verse thirteen. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be so reminded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, and do not, I'm sorry, not with perishable things, such as silver, silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, we're going to stop right there. So believing or trusting in the gospel, it literally changes everything. It changes everything about who you are and then what you do. And I think this is really what Peter has been getting at as he's been writing this letter. I mean, just consider, remember, remember what he's written to this point. He starts and he opens the letter writing to exiles as a result of the election of God, the Father. They're exiles. They don't belong. He says, elect according to the Father, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And then he turns and he begins to draw them into worship. And he says, now listen, look at this. Look at the beauty of this. He has caused you to be born again. He has given you new 
life. That's the, the, the essence of the new identity. He's made you new. You are no longer the old man. You're a new man. You're no longer the old creation. You're a new creation. He's done this work in you. He goes on and he begins to show them how their souls are being saved. And because of all that God has done, as people come and believe in Him, they have hope. A living hope. They're able to rejoice in suffering. They're able to, to um, sacrifice because of Him. They're able to, to, to love Jesus with their whole lives. He, he pours these things out. He, he spells these things out. Well, it's no wonder... It's no wonder to me that Christians live in this schizophrenia uh, that, that causes depression and struggles in life because we miss the, the essence of the identity that he's already built out. It's no wonder our culture doesn't get that we can't just set these things aside. It's no wonder that you hear reporters on television in, in recent days saying that, that religion and faith has no place on Main Street or Wall Street. It's no wonder that they would, that they would look at us and think, well, why does your faith affect how you vote? Or, or look at us and say, why does your faith affect how you run your business? Because we don't even understand it. We don't even get it. We don't even know. But, but that is exactly what, he, what, what, he, what he's been pointing to. He's saying, this is who you are and this is what you're believing. And he comes to this moment and he gives us this one powerful but simple word. Therefore, therefore, because of all I've just told you, because of all I've been writing to you, because of everything I've said to this point, these things are true. These things are the implications of God's work on the believer. These things are, 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 the, are, are, are what should direct your life. These things are the implications for your day in, day out living. And he helps us begin to see how our identity directs our practice. See, I, I think the reality is, is that if, if Christianity was just supposed to be some external practice and we could just kind of set it aside until it's appropriate, you know, like Sunday morning when you're in a church building, if Christianity was just supposed to be some, some external practice, some, some set of doctrines that you just intellectually agree with, if that was the case, then I don't think we'd have this letter. I don't think Peter would have ever had a reason to write because there would have been no Christians being persecuted under the Roman government. You see, the reality is, is that as they were made new, their lives were changed and they were brought onto this collision course with culture. It wasn't them against the culture, but it was them living in light of the, doc the, the doctrine of the gospel instead of what they had always lived. They had radically been changed. The, the, through the gospel, God isn't just giving us religion to follow, but he gives us a whole new identity that then has implications on all we do. There. Therefore, therefore, Peter says, get your minds ready. Because of all the work that he's done, get your minds ready. Because you can rejoice in the midst of suffering. Because you're willing to sacrifice your life for Christ. Because you love him, even though you haven't seen him. Get your minds ready. Prepare yourself for action. Be sober-minded, he says. That means exercise a little self-control. 
Don't be running around willy-nilly just giving yourself over to anything. And I don't know if any of you run around willy-nilly, but that's what he's saying. Don't do it. Set your hope fully on Jesus. That's just another way of saying believe in him and nothing else. Right? We set our hopes on all kinds of things. He's saying set your hope, your trust for the future, set it on Jesus completely. Don't share that with anything else. Do, do not live like you used to live, but live differently. Live differently as obedient children live differently. Because of who He has made you, live differently. And that really is the answer to the question that I, I want us to deal with this week. We're going to deal with this, this, this passage twice, and one, one time we're going to answer the question, why do we do this? Why do Christians live or strive to live distinctly holy lives? And next week, as we deal with this passage again, we'll, we'll talk about how we live distinctly holy lives. But that idea that because of the work He's done, because of the Gospel, because of His work in us, we live differently. That's the answer. That's the essence of the answer to the question, why? Why do Christians' lives naturally look different? Why should they? Why, why, why would a Christian live in such a way that's going to put them at risk in the culture they live? Why would a Christian, why would anyone, Determine that they're going to live in a countercultural way. Why would anyone put up with potential ridicule or difficulty? Why would anyone want this? Why would anyone invite it? I was kind of teased last week because, because I made a comment in the second service that, you know, none of us are out there asking for more suffering. It's like, give me more. Nobody's asking that, right? I mean, are you, at, hey, I, I want a little more suffering here. Well, it's not, that's not the prayer we pray. But this is the very thing Peter's calling us to. He's calling us to live in a countercultural way, to live differently than we used to because of what God has done. That's the essence of the answer. But I think we're going to, I don't think, I know, I, I see it in the text, I, I know we're going to answer it three different ways, more specifically to help you understand, to help you grasp from a biblical perspective why it is that we as Christians live this way. Because it's not to gain position, it's because we've been given position. We're going to break it out three different ways. The first way that we live, or why we live, holy, distinct lives. We strive for holiness because God has made us holy. Did you hear me read it a minute ago? Look at verse 15 and 16. As he who has called you is holy, you be holy in all of your conduct. Not some of your conduct, not when you feel like it, not, when, not, not, not at 10.30 on Sunday morning, not, not when it's your quiet time, not at Wednesday when you go to community group, in all of your conduct, that's Main Street and Wall Street, and whatever street you live on. I don't know what street you live on. That's all of them. All the streets that you inhabit, all of the places you go, all the circumstances you live in, in all your ways, be holy. Since it is written. Now Peter is building his perspective off of Scripture. He actually draws this out of Leviticus. It's about four or five times, I think. I think four. Written in Leviticus. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now he's, I think he's dealing with this in two different ways. First, I think it's a statement of identity. 
this is who you are. God made you holy. That's the essence of your new nature. It is a holy nature. It's a, it's a distinct and set-apart nature. It's different than what it was before. Before, your nature was unholy. Now, it's holy. But he's also using it as a command. And he's saying, now, because of who you are, holy one, you're to act holy. And so he's dealing with it as a, as a command and a, and a what you do kind of thing. So barring from some of the language that's already been broken out in this letter, let me just illustrate or let me just show you how I think we can kind of, kind of think through this. In First Peter chapter 1, he says, your soul is being saved. That's at the end of chapter, or, or the middle of chapter 1, about verse 10, or verse 9, I'm sorry, obtaining the outcome of your, your faith, the salvation of your souls. Your soul is being saved. That's your identity, one who is being saved. So act like it. Do you think that a person who's being saved by a fireman in a fire is going to act differently than a person who is not being saved? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the attitude all the way down at the bottom to, to everything that they're doing in the midst of the rescue, right? I mean, the person that's dying in the flames is just, I, I, well, I don't know. I, I can't imagine fear, suffering, just, just, just torment. And the fireman comes in, and in the midst of that torment, that person sees their hope, it sees their opportunity, and suddenly things begin to change. And maybe there's still fear, but it's, it, it's, there's a glimmer of hope. And instead of flailing in the flames, they're clinging to the fireman. You have been given, Peter says, you have been given an inheritance. It says this in verse 4, that you, have been, that you have been given new life, born again to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. You have been given an inheritance. You ever seen the fights that happen over what's left to people when people die? It divides families. People who are given an inheritance act differently than people who haven't been given an inheritance. You have been given an inheritance. So act like it. That's what Peter's saying. You, you have been born again. He has caused us to be born again. So act like it. Living people live differently than zombies. You ever watch The Walking Dead? They act differently. It's pretty obvious who the zombie is and who's not. You're not a zombie. So don't act like it. You're alive. So act like it. Or more specifically here in this passage, in verse 13, and I'm sorry, verse 15 and 16, he says, you are holy. So act like it. That's, that's the whole premise of what Peter is getting at. That's the whole, whole idea that's behind this, this message as he turns now to this place that he calls people to action, to, to doing something. But he's not calling them to doing something because they need to gain position before God. He's calling them to doing something because they've been given position before God. We strive for holiness because He has made us holy. In fact, if you get these two things out of order, you got a whole other equation. You see, you got legalism. You got religious identity. Well, look at all the good works I do. 
I go to church every week. I, I serve at the church every week. I don't know, pick a service. I, kids' way. I, I, I serve in kids' way every week. I serve in the worship ministry every week. And that, and that means in the worship ministry, that means I'm here on Tuesdays for practice. And then I'm part of a community group. And then when they're doing functions at the school and they're trying to serve the school next door, I go for that too. God, do you see what I'm doing down here for you? See how holy I am? It doesn't work that way. You see, those are only holy actions if he has first made you holy. This expression comes as a result of the identity that he's put in us. Now let's just deal with this. Let's define it. I've been using the word a lot, and I probably should have already done this for you. But what does it mean, holy? We defined it a couple of weeks ago, but I just want to make sure that we're all together. Just literally, very simply, it means to be distinct, to be set apart, to be, to be made pure. And, and Peter applies this in two different ways in this passage. He applies it first to, to us and then to God. And when we apply it, it's used, when we apply it to God, it's used in his identity. It's the essence of his identity. He is a holy God. In fact, in one commentary that I read from, as I studied for this passage, they're not, they, they, they mentioned that the, the holiness of God, this trait of God, his holiness, is mentioned more often in the Old Testament and New Testament than any other trait. More than his glory, more than his grace, more than his mercy, more than his righteousness, more than any other trait, more than any other attribute of God, his holiness is it, it, it is impressed upon us. It is exemplified for us. It is shown to us more than any other perspective because it's the essence of who he is. Twice in the Bible is heavily emphasized. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, and in Revelation 4, verse 8, there's God sitting on his throne and angels are surrounding him. And they're not just saying he's holy, but they're saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It's this idea that he is set apart, that he's above us and beyond us. And I just imagine what Isaiah is experiencing. Isaiah is writing from a first-person experience. He's, he's in the throne room, and he's seeing God sitting on the throne. And he says the throne room, that the, that, that the, the, the room is filled with the train of his, of his glory. That, that his, his glory and his excellence is just, it, it, it's just un, unbelievable. He sees him as majestic and exalted and distinct and set apart from himself. And he sees these angels around the throne, six wings, flying around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he is so keenly aware in that moment of God's majesty, His glory, and His, and His purity, and His distinctness from all of, of creation. He's so keenly aware of it that He can't help but be keenly aware of His own sinfulness and the sinfulness of His people. And so He says this in Isaiah 6, 5. He writes, And I said, in response to seeing this holy God, And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How do you think you'd react 
What, what, what do you think your reaction would be to this? I don't, I don't think I'd be walking up to the throne. Hey, what's up, dude? What's up? You know? All right, I just want to make sure we're still connected. I, I don't think that's what we would be doing. I, I think I'd be lucky to get a word out. How would you react? God, he is, he is holy. He is pure. He is distinct. He is set apart. He is completely independent of us. He is completely set apart from us. Tim Keller says it like this. God is infinitely above and beyond us. So he is not at the top end of the scale of power. He is not at the top end of the scale of love. He is not at the top end of the scale of wisdom. But he is infinitely exalted above us off the scale. The, what he's saying is he doesn't even belong on the scale with us. If we bring him down to, to be at the top of our scale, then we have simply undermined his holiness. He's on a whole other scale. He is infinitely separated from us, infinitely distinct from us, infinitely beyond us, completely set apart from us. And that's why we need him to act. Because there's no way you and I get there. There's no way we approach his holiness unless he brings his holiness to us. The scripture in Peter here, he applies the same term to us. And, and, and we need to be careful because this doesn't make us God. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make us God, but it makes us like God. He, he's making us to be like himself. I am holy and you will be holy. You will be like me. You will share a nature like mine. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I tried to help you see this, and I help, tried to help clarify it, and I, I pointed out that the chair you're sitting in, you've made it holy unto yourself. You've set it apart for your use. You're, 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 you're making sure that this is mine, and nobody else gets to use it. Most of the time. Now, I talk to you about my Bible. This is my Bible. I have set it apart for my use. Come and take it. I dare you. I told the second service I would punch them. Come and, come and take it. No, this is mine. I've set it apart for my use. I've set it apart unto myself. This is precious to me. For my purpose. For my desire. This is mine. And God looks at you. This is not a direct correlation because we can't truly make things holy. But, but, but it, it draws a picture. God has looked at you and He has said, You are mine. You belong to me. You're, my, you're, you're mine for my purpose, by, by, by my desire. You are mine and no one else can have you. You are set apart. You are distinct. You are purified by my power. That's what it means. He has made you holy. He has set you apart. And now the natural reaction is that you act in what He's done. 
You can't help but be holy if He's made you holy. Why do Christians act and, and, and strive for a distinct holiness? Because they have been made holy. God is holy. And by claiming us His own, as His own, He has made us holy. And if that statement is true about you, then you will not be able to do anything but begin to act in holiness. But insofar as you resist that, and insofar as you push back against that, you will find that you will not rejoice in suffering. You will not know the peace of God. You will not be willing to give up your life. But this is the beginning of why. Because He has made you holy. He has given you a, a new nature. This essence is holiness. The second reason that I believe that we strive for this is that we strive for holiness because God adopted us as His children. Now, now that, that, that first perspective, it really builds out our essence, our nature, our identity. And this doesn't, it, it doesn't change the idea of identity. I mean, an adopted child has a distinct identity. But, but it begins to, to give us a glimpse of what it looks like for us to, to not, just, not just to sit in it and let it to be passively true about us, but I think this lets us begin to see that, that it's an action that we begin to choose and walk in purposefully. Look at verse 14 and, and 17. In verse 14, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. He's, he's calling us, as a result of being made children, as a result of being adopted, choose to live differently. Choose to walk in obedience. It's a command. In verse 17, he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, then conduct yourselves with fear. I'm going to skip and paraphrase. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Choose to act differently. Choose to act in honor and reverence. Choose to live differently because you are no longer just a citizen in the kingdom, but you are a child of the king. I mean, just consider this. Just consider this. I mean, we're blessed to have a number of adoptive families in our church. We're blessed to be able to see the, the results of that. We're blessed to be able to watch and see the picture, the imagery that's demonstrated for us in the beauty of the gospel. But just imagine how different their lives would be. Just imagine how different their identity is and how differently they will act because they've been adopted. Now, I didn't ask him to do this, and so, Chris, I hope it's okay. I hope you don't get mad at me. But I can't help as he sits there on the front row thinking about Judah. I just can't. I mean, just imagine how different Judah's life is because he calls Chris Ababa, which is father in his native language. Just imagine how different his identity is, how it's being shaped in him than what it would have been if he'd never been adopted. Just imagine how differently he will act in life because Chris is his father. Just imagine. It's going to be drastically different. His language, his speech, his, his practices, all because of this essential change in his identity. Because someone, somewhere looked out and saw, and he's my child. 
It's radically and forever changed the, the direction of Jesus' life. How precious. Now, this isn't to say it's not without trouble. This isn't to say that it's not without difficulty. You see, as we struggle against who we are, and as we struggle against this new identity, in many, in many ways, they have to prepare for that. They have to get ready for that as they go to adopt their child. They have to be taught and, and, and led to think through the difficulties that adopted children have to deal with. But that in no way undermines the identity and the different way of life because of that identity. In the same way, in the same way, we wrestle against these things, looking back to who we were, looking back to our old identity, looking back and clinging to who we were before Christ. But God is not just a judge sitting on a throne. He, he's, he's not just a master to be served. He is a father who loved you enough to say you're my child. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, writes that adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel, higher even than justification. Now, I'm I'm just going to tell you personally, I, I struggle with this idea that we make one aspect of salvation higher than another. And, and, and he says higher than justification. I understand why he's doing this. For so long in Christian history and so long in Christian terms, we have focused so heavily on the forgiveness of sin, on the justification, on the righteousness that we receive through Christ. So he comes and he raises up adoption and he says, look how beautiful it is. Look at what God has done. He's removed the gospel out of the clinical courtroom of justification and he has placed it in the relationship of a father to his son. So I personally, I don't want to elevate one over the other. I think they're both beautiful. Oh, brothers and sisters, we cannot and should never diminish the beauty of his adoptive work on our behalf. He didn't have to say you were his child. He didn't have to self-identify as your father. By his power and in his grace, he has said, you are my child. Act like it. Walk in obedience. Revere and respect me as you would an earthly father. See, we act differently. We strive for holiness. We pursue things differently not because we have some external practice to follow and some thing to measure up to, but because we belong to Him. Because He is our Father and we are His child. And then third, we strive for holiness because God ransomed us from futility. Look at verse 18. In verse 18 He says, in, in, in response to, are you calling on him as father? He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. 
specifically speaking to this people, specifically speaking and writing to this group of people, there's a reality that, that he could have meant two different things when he talked about the futile ways of your forefathers. In this church, in these churches that were scattered across Asia Minor, it's very likely that there were Jewish people that were there because they had been run out of Jerusalem because of their Christian faith. And, and having come to Christianity, the Jews didn't want them, so they ran them off. And so they scattered across these places. And, and then there's also those people who were Romans or who were Gentiles living in the Roman government and thinking of the Roman ways and, and living under the idolatry of Rome. And they were together in this church. And so as Peter's writing this, he probably has two things in mind as he thinks about these futile ways. One is the empty religion of the Romans and their idolatry and pagan worship and the other is the empty religion of the jews one looked very moral one looked very very put together one would fit in our christian circles because they didn't steal and they didn't worship false gods and they didn't they didn't do bad things they were a very moral people one not so much in fact sexual immorality was part of the worship of some of these pagan gods Thievery was protected. Theft and, and, and evil was protected by many of these gods. In the, in the um, shadow of the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, in the shadow of her temple, there, there was thieves would go for protection. Just evil people. People who we wouldn't want to live in that neighborhood. Didn't look very moral. But morality or immorality... It's futile. It means it's empty. It's meaningless. It's purposeless. It, 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 it achieves nothing. The truth is, is that religion, whether it's, whether it's pagan or whether it's, whether it's legalistic Phariseeism, they, they both leave us empty. So we strive for holiness because God has ransomed us out of that. He has, he has bought us out of that. And that, that word ransomed, it's a, it's, it, it's a word, especially in the Greek, it's a word that was used in the slavery tra- slave trade. We were bought out of that slavery. We were bought out of that position of indebtedness. We were bought out of that place of being owned and enslaved to the futile ways of our fathers. And we were brought in to a whole new identity, made free from our sin, made free from the debt that, that we have incurred by our sin and the preciousness of that. I mean, I mean, just talking about it in clinical terms, it just doesn't sound that big a deal. I mean, he paid a price, okay. But the preciousness of that is, is, is brought to us as we consider the price paid. He didn't just buy you with silver and gold. But with the precious blood of his only son jesus see so often we're stuck in this place we're stuck in we're stuck in this place that we're just identifying completely with our with our old self with our sinfulness oh i'm a worm i'm worthless i'm vile and apart from christ you are but in christ you are ransomed you are freed You have been given a new name. He has called you his child. And he said you are holy. You're his. And he paid that price. And he set your value 
by paying that price with his son's blood. You are a child of the king. Holy and set apart in, in, in this world. You are made distinct. You are the you 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 are valuable to him. Let me give, give you a, a quick warning that comes with that perspective. We don't want to forget who we were. But we also don't want to undervalue the beauty of our new identity. Certainly remember that you were vile. But quit calling yourself vile. And remember yourself as holy. Remember that at one time, at one time, you were an outcast. You didn't even belong in the kingdom. You had no place or position. But remember, by His blood, you've been brought into the throne room. And He said, this is my child. Don't forget that at one time, you were enslaved to the, to the futile ways of your forefathers. But remember that He has ransomed you from them. You are new. That is your identity. That is the, the core of who you are. So act like it. Act in accordance with this new nature. Let's pray.